0: Today's reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, "'nor grumble, as some of them did, "'and were destroyed by the destroyer. "'Now these things happened to them as an example, "'but they were written down for our instruction "'on whom the end of the ages has come. "'Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands "'take heed, lest he fall. "'No temptation is taking you that is not common to man. "'God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted "'beyond your ability, but will, with the temptation "'he will also provide the way of escape,' That you may be able to bear it. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever.
1: So I was reminded this week uh, through a podcast that I listened to that in this in this letter Paul is writing. He just to remind you guys, uh, he's writing to Christians. And, and what I was reminded of specifically in this podcast was was how Paul refers to these Christians. In chapter 1, verse 2, at the very beginning of his letter, this is how he refers to them uh, as those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so from there, he goes on in his letter, as we've seen, to, to sort of course correct these believers these brothers and sisters who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, simply because they are going off the rails. And they're going off the rails by allowing the culture in which they live to influence how they live and how they practice their faith, how they practice their Christianity. But Paul has never taken back his words from chapter 1, verse 6. He's never said, you're not sanctified now. You're you're not called to to the brothers and sisters across the world who call in the name of Christ. They are still sanctified in Christ. They are still saints, saints together with all the other saints across the world. So Paul isn't saying that they are in danger of losing their salvation because that's impossible. But what he is saying is what all Christians need to hear Because we're all prone to wander, we're all predisposed to go our own way, uh, to do what we think is right in our own eyes, uh, to worship our own idols even, and so what we need to hear is come back to the cross. Don't forget what Christ has done. Because once you forget what Christ has done, that's when things start to go sideways, So Paul sets out in our text this morning in these 13 verses, once again, to remind these Corinthian Christians about the God who has saved them. And he does that in three ways. One is to remind them of the story of God. Second is to remind them of the satisfaction of God. And then third, to remind them of the faithfulness of God. So the story of God, the satisfaction of God, and the faithfulness of God. So our entire text today echoes the story of God from the Old Testament, as we'll see. But in these first five verses, we hear the echo specifically from the book of Exodus. And if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you'll know that the main story in Exodus is God's deliverance of his people out of 400 years of slavery to Pharaoh. So this is, uh, has been said to be the central um, act of the Old Testament, just like the cross is the central act of the New Testament, because it shadows uh, for us what Jesus is going to do uh, for us, for his people. And while there is a lot of details that are intriguing in, in this text, they're all secondary. Because what Paul wants to do, he wants to to draw a parallel between Israel's situation in the Exodus, which was thousands of years before this, uh, in the wilderness, and and the Corinthians' current position in their own kind of cultural wilderness. Which is interesting, since Paul's current audience, uh, they are not uh, a, a fully Jewish audience. They are mostly Gentiles in Corinth and yet he's connecting their story to the greater story of the people of God. All that to say is, again, to remind them of his words, you are sanctified in Christ. You you are members of God's household. You are members of God's family. You are brothers and sisters, even to the Israelites. Now, when the Bible mentions... Uh, The word wilderness, uh, it's not speaking about a place with lush evergreens and flowing rivers. When the Bible speaks of a wilderness, it is speaking about a a desert. It is speaking about a a dry, dusty, and barren land. And it's the desert where God leads his people in Exodus. He saves them, and then he leads them into the desert. So Paul points out that while in the desert, God provides for them, for, for his people, In every way, protection and provision, even after they have reached, uh, they reach, eventually reach the promised land. uh, the, The scriptures remind us that none of their sandals ever wore out on this journey, this 40 year journey of wandering through the wilderness. Never happened. And then, most importantly, as Paul points out in these first five verses, God sustains them, not just with food, not just with protection and provision, but he sustains them by Christ himself. They had everything they needed for life and godliness, they were lacking nothing. God had provided in a very clear way, in multiple different ways, for his people. And still, Paul points out in verse 5 with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So still, after all God did for them, dramatic deliverance, so if you know the story of the Passover, you know there was all of these miracles that were performed amongst God's people. They saw it happen. They had the actual Passover when the firstborn of of everyone who did not have the blood on their doorway all were killed. They heard the wailing and the crying when that actually came to fruition. And then if that wasn't enough, they crossed the Red Sea in this miraculous way. Uh, They had clear provision. They had miraculous provision. uh, Water just spouted out from a rock. They had food that that came down from heaven every single day perfectly. And yet they still don't trust fully in what God has done. So instead... They go their own way, they worship their own idols, and therefore suffer the consequences of not being able to see the promised land, which is what it means to to be overthrown. They were not able to attain that wonderful promise that God had given to them because of their sin. These were a people rescued by God, and Paul now draws this parallel uh, with the Corinthians. Because they too are a people that have been rescued by God. They too are a people that have everything they need for life and godliness. They too are drinking from the spiritual rock that is Christ. But they're also like the Israelites in the wilderness and that they are a people who are not able to fully comprehend their rescue. And So this is why Paul says in verse 1, Chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I do not want the same uh, kind of ideas and, and beliefs and practices that the Israelites had to seep into your own hearts. Because what the Israelites failed to do and to which Paul is warning the Corinthians is to see beyond their hunger and thirst, to to see beyond their, their physical needs and wants and to see that their true need can only be satisfied in being found in God's story. And that's true for you and I as well. And to that end, in verses 6 through 11, Paul draws this out for his readers by showing them that nothing else will ever be as satisfactory as God's satisfaction that he alone provides in Christ Jesus. So look with me at verses 6 through 10 as we move into our second point the satisfaction of God. Paul writes, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. why israel was overthrown by god he he wants them to be clear that it wasn't because god was just just feeling like he wanted to punish somebody or to get his people in trouble or to be this kind of cosmic killjoy that uh sometimes god is painted as he does this and paul shows them this so that his readers would not continue down the same path because that's the way that they're headed They're headed down the same path of destruction that the Israelites already walked. So in verse 6, Paul says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in verses 7 through 10, Paul gives them some specific uh, uh, examples uh, as he lists four sins of Israel that find some parallel within the Corinthian church. The first being idolatry. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, Paul is referring back to the instance in the life of Israel where they worshiped the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, verses 4 through 6. And if You're not familiar with this uh, this scene. Uh, Moses is not with him. He is up on the mountain. He is receiving the law from God. So their leader is away from them. Their their pastor is is not uh, amongst them at this particular time because he is speaking to God on the mountaintop. And so that's where we find ourselves. And he takes a little while to do so. I mean, he's talking to God. And this is what happens down below in the valley. So Aaron was still there, and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, and he said, "'These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt.' When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, "'Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord.' And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now remember, all of the miraculous things that have happened up to this point for the Israelites. And yet they still turned to an idol and not the God who rescued them. They're still very much ready to, to fashion and create an idol, much like the Egyptians were doing, much like the other pagans of the land were doing, so that they could have a visible representation. And this is who they rose up to eat and drink and play to. And the temptation to idolatry was very much a real prospect for the Corinthians as well. They still had people who were creating images and, and things like that. So, uh, so it was a very real, real prospect. But there were also other physical and tangible things too that their hearts were going after. Their hearts were worshiping. But this is also a great temptation for us as well. Yeah, we don't have somebody who is carving out images for us so that we can worship them as, as, little, as little idols that we have set up on our mantelpieces or whatever it might be. I mean, you might have that, but it's very rare. But just because we don't have these carved images anymore, we are still tempted to worship the created rather than, rather than the creator. So one ex- exercise that I heard uh, one, another pastor give is to ask yourself this question, to, to see whether or not you have an idol that you are worshiping. If I only had blank, then I would be satisfied. If I only had blank, then I would be satisfied. So the question is, what's in the blank for you? What could you write there? What are you inserting there? What picture comes to your mind when I ask that question? If I only had a a boyfriend or a girlfriend, then I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy. Then everything would be right. If I only had a husband or a wife, then I would be satisfied. If I only had a child, then I would be satisfied. If I only had those grades, or if I only had that raise so that I can make more money. Or if I only had that position, or if I only had that house, or or that vacation, then I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy. So whatever's in that blank is your idol. You are worshiping it in some capacity. But in reality, we all know this, that in reality, when you get that girlfriend... Or you get that husband, or you get that raise, or you get that house, or whatever it might be, there is always something else waiting in line to fill in the blank again. Because if you worship one idol, you probably will worship another one. So you're actually not as satisfied as you think you are, which means everything in this life, physically, even your spouse, even your children, even, even your money, even your job, will never satisfy you. Which means John Calvin was right. Our hearts are idol-making factories, just churning them out. So the way you avoid idolatry, then, is by being aware of what you are tempted to worship other than God. So whatever it is that you put in that blank, that's probably something you're tempted to worship. So you need to be aware of that and turn from it. Uh, and you have to be wise here because whatever you put in that blank, I am sure, uh, is a good thing. Or is not necessarily bad? Probably. Because idolatry, this is the tricky thing about I- idolatry, is it's making a good thing an ultimate thing. There's nothing wrong with desiring a husband or a wife. There's nothing wrong with desiring a new house or to make more money. There's nothing wrong with those those things. But when they become an ultimate thing, our worship has changed. Our our worship, worship focus has changed. And that's why Paul warns his readers, do not be idolaters, simply. And then later in verse 14, he says, flee from idolatry, run from it, get away from it, don't have anything to do with it. So that's the first sin, idolatry. The second sin Paul lists is sexual immorality in verse 8 when he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So Obviously, this is not the first time that Paul has brought this up in his letter, uh, which tells us that this this was something that the Corinthians really struggled with. Sexual immorality ran deep within the Corinthian within Corinthian culture at large, but also within the Corinthian church. So this is one of the reasons I wanted to remind you of Paul's words in chapter one verse two again, because I know there are some who struggle with, Sexual sin in our midst, but I want you to be reminded uh, again: if that is you, if you if you find yourself there, that you are still sanctified in Christ. If you are professing His His name, if you are repentant and believed, you are still sanctified in Christ. Christ has God has made you that in Christ. Okay. Sexual immorality does not make you not a Christian anymore. Because I know some of you feel that way. It's not an unforgivable sin. It doesn't make you less sanctified. But, so take courage in that. As you fight sin, take courage in that. But don't forget this. It will cause you great harm you will suffer consequences from it. Whether you're engaged in hookup culture, pornography, an adulterous affair, these all lead to the same end. And I want you to listen to me here because this is not hyperbole. This is not just making a point that's serious and it's not really that serious. I'm letting you know that your sexual sin will lead you to destruction and death. The example Paul uses in verse 8 from Numbers 25 uh, shows us this very real outcome amongst God's people. Let me just read it for you. While Israel lived in Shidom, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel, a.k.a. God's people, yoked himself to Baal of Peor, an idol, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, "'Take all the chiefs of the people, the leaders, and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel.'" And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So here's the scene right here. The people have whored after uh, these these women. They, They have whored after other gods because of that. And now Moses is calling them to repentance in this very severe way that God has instructed him to do to set an example for the whole congregation that God is angry at their sin. And then in verse 6, this man comes in with this Midianite woman in front of everyone. As everyone's repenting and weeping over their sin, this man comes in boldly and takes this woman into his tent to have sex with her. And then in verse 7, When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, God had forgiven them. But nevertheless... Those who died by the plague were 24,000, which as we see in Paul's Old Testament example, sexual sin leads to idolatry, and and idolatry essentially can lead you to sexual sin as well. It's what happened to Israel. It's what was happening in the Corinthian church amongst Christians, and we also see, in, in a very serious light, sexual sin can and does lead to death. That comes from the, the severe judgment of God. And even though they are identified as God's people, they, they still die under God's judgment because they desire evil rather than that which is good. So the promise of Romans 6.23 the first part of Romans six twenty three, um, which is a, a verse that we often quote in, in kind of a evangelism presentations for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is is, is uh, the free gift of God is Christ. Um, but that first part of the of the verse for the wages of sin is death is not just a promise for the unbeliever; it is a promise for the unbeliever, but it's also a promise for the believer. Because I do believe when Paul says this in Romans 6, he is talking about a spiritual death that is occurring for those who are not walking with Jesus, for those who are not turning to Jesus for salvation. They, will, they, they are and will continue to experience a spiritual death because of that. But I also believe that he's talking about physical death as well. And the example he has used in this letter is a very clear example of this. So so the warning to the Corinthians is the same warning offered to you and to me. Do not indulge in sexual immorality. And again, God is not giving this command because he's a cosmic killjoy and he wants you, he wants you just to be boring and not to have fun and, and just kind of sit in the corner and read your Bible and do, do nothing at all. No, the reason why God gives his commands to his people is because he loves them. It's the same reason you give rules and regulations to your children. It's not because you hate them. It's because you love them and you want them to thrive and flourish in life. So one way in which you can fight sexual sin, and I think the most important way that you can fight sexual sin, is by bringing it into the light. Bringing it into the light. So, so find a couple of people in this church, if you're a member here, in this church that you can confess this to and not just kind of sign you up for some accountability thing online, which is, which is fine and, and, and useful, but someone who is actually going to ask you hard questions and hold you to the fire but also someone who is full of grace and love for you as well. Knowing that the consequences are serious, even deadly. So that's the second sin. The third sin that Paul lists is the sin of putting Christ to the test. Now, the interesting thing here that I want you to see is that Paul is saying that the Israelites... Put Christ to the test so the Israelites are in the Old Testament so oftentimes we don't think about the Old Testament having Jesus in it but I just want you to know just in case you follow the, the, uh, the poor theology of Andy Stanley uh, out of Atlanta who said some years ago to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament um, you can't do that Because of what Paul is writing here. Paul has not unhitched himself from the Old Testament. There's no way he could because that was the only Bible available at the time. And so Paul is saying again, you put Israel, you put Christ to the test. The son of the living God. So I just want you to see that. Because when when the Israelites have a lack of food, so they think, it's actually just not food that they really enjoy anymore, um, or or a lack of water, they become impatient and they speak against Christ. Numbers 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to, to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, "'Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness?' For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, which is provided to them by God, by the way. So the Israelites essentially believe because uh, because, we're, we're, because we're God's people, nothing bad should ever happen to us. Because we're God's people and because he has set his promises upon us, we should never have to suffer. We should never have to be without, and so this causes them to live in this, this sort of, uh, of, of arrogant privilege, which causes them no longer to trust in the promises of God, because they're suffering hardship, and they're being, they're being kind of knocked around a little bit, and they don't understand, why would God allow this to happen to me? which drives them to speak against God. And because they do this, he disciplines them. In Numbers 21, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So they get to a point where they realize their sin and they repent. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So maybe you're asking yourself this question. How have I ever tested God? I don't think I've done that before. Well, have you ever prayed a prayer like this or something similar? I know I have. God, if you do X, I would do whatever you want me to do. If you give me that, those idols that I talked about, the filling in the if you give me a husband or if you give me a wife, uh, I'll do whatever, I'll do whatever you call me to do. Just make this a reality for me. God, I've gone to church uh, two Sundays out of four. Uh, Where is my blessing? Why aren't you doing good things for me? I even put a couple of bucks in the offering basket. Or, God, why do bad things happen to me? I'm a good person. I, I worship every Sunday. I put uh, $3 in the offering basket. I, I, I hang out with God's people. I'm, I'm a servant. I'm here setting up, tearing down every single Sunday. Why do these bad things happen to me? Why, why, why can't you hear me? Why are you not answering my prayers? And if you've ever asked that question, which I'm sure you have, you're in the same boat as the Corinthians. You're in the same boat as the Israelites. We are no better than them. Because instead of trusting in God's promises, which he has proved for us in Christ, you instead put him to the test to see if he's actually good. And this is where you find, if this is where you find yourself, you need to to be healed. Just like like the Israelites needed to be healed of the snake biting them. And the only way that comes about is, is not by looking at a bronze serpent, I haven't crafted one of those, but it's by looking to Christ. And we see that in Numbers 21, when when Moses makes a bronze serpent that the people have to look at in order to be saved from their consequences of their sin, which is death. The bronze snake is a type of Christ. It's, It's a shadow of the Savior to come. It's a shadow of Jesus himself. And it's Jesus himself who, who, who brings these, this illustration together uh, with himself. In John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, Jesus says this, and this might be some verses that you kind of skim over to get to John 3, 16, but in John 3, 14 through 15, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. which means some of you who are not believers need to look to Christ for the first time so that you might be healed, so that you might be rescued from your sin. And for everybody else who calls on the, who's already called on the name of Christ, you're sanctified in Christ Jesus, uh, you are walking with him, you are, you are a saint together with all the other saints across the world and across time, you need to continue to look to Christ for your ongoing sanctification and for your ongoing forgiveness of sins. Look to Christ. So the final sin that Paul lists here piggybacks off of putting Christ to the test because it's what we do when we don't get our way. It's what we do when God doesn't answer the prayers that we pray in the way that we want him to. We grumble. Verse 10, Paul says, We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, this is another uh, Old Testament account that Paul is pointing back to to make his point from Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. It says this And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let us choose someone to lead us back into this bondage that was horrible. Because it seems so bad right now. To which God replies to this. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and all of your number.'" Listed in the census census, from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. So this is the part where God says, you're just going to wander around in a circle. You're never going to see the promised land. You're never going to experience the, the true abundance that I have for you because of your grumbling." Paul is so explicit because some of the Corinthians were in danger of repeating these exact same sins that God's people had already fallen into. They've they've already read their, their Old Testament. They've already seen the consequences of the actions of the Israelite people. They've already seen that. And yet they were still flirting with pagan worship, flirting with sexual immorality, they were impatient with God's timetable and dissatisfied with their leaders in the churches there. They were arrogant with a self-righteous confidence in their standing before God. And this is ultimately, this, and this ultimately caused, uh, is caused because they were not satisfied fully in God. God was kind of over here to the side, and if we wanted to tap into him, we could. So if we wanted to go get our taste of him, we might go to a Sunday morning service or something like that, or we might go when it's Christmas or Easter or whatever it is, so that we can kind of get that goodness feeling within us. And that's kind of where the Corinthians are at in their attitude. And we all need to take heed of this. We all fall into the trap of being dissatisfied in God. And yet, even though we do, God never ceases to be faithful to us. He never ceases to call us back to himself. Look at verses 11 through 13, where Paul sort of highlights this for the Corinthians. After all of this bad news, this crushing news, Paul says, look at the faithfulness of God. So as a testament to God's faithfulness, in verse 11, Paul reveals this incredible truth to his readers of exactly why these things happen to the Israelites. So that they would be an example to them. Which includes you and I. So what this tells us is that God has had us on his mind, for a very, very long time. That even as he's teaching Israel how to walk rightly with him, he's also thinking about how this will be a help to the Corinthians, but also a help to us. And then in verse 12, as a callback to Israel's fall in the desert, Paul tells the Corinthians, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So, so the use of the word, therefore, signals the centrality of this verse for our text, for the, for the whole of chapter 10, um, but just for our text this morning through chapter, verse 13, because this is the Corinthians' problem. They're arrogant. And this arrogance is an arrogance of belief that they think they can stand before God without judgment based on their own merit. And I think this is a great warning for all of us because we're all tempted to believe that we're way better off than than we are. That that we've got it all together. That my sin is not that bad. I mean, maybe you went through the the four sins that were listed there by Paul and you just kind of checked the boxes and said, yep, I don't struggle with any of those things. I am good. But you struggle with something. So we arrogantly think, God will never act this way in judgment again. He will not do that. Some of you are probably sitting there thinking that, as I was saying, uh, that, that destruction and death is a consequence of our sins still. And you think, he'll never do that again. And Paul is simply saying, be careful with that type of attitude. Watch out lest you fall as well, just like the Israelites did. And at the very same time, even though that is all true, God is not erratic. God, he doesn't set his people up to fall. He actually does the opposite in verse 13. If you were, yeah, and again, if you're sitting there thinking, man, God is, yeah, he is out to get us. Like if we, if we screw up, we, we are done for it. That's what it seems like because of these stories that Paul is, is, is pulling from in the Old Testament but it's actually the opposite of what you might be thinking. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So how is God faithful? He's faithful because he has secured for us, secured for us, our standing before him and before his judgment because God will again judge the earth. But he has secured for us our standing that is founding Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has already been tempted in every way we have or will be tempted. And yet he was without sin. He never gave in. And still, it's Jesus, as sinless as he was, it's still Jesus who takes on God's judgment for our sin. The sinless one takes on sin, which means the Israelites, the Corinthians, you and me can stand before God by faith. Only because it's God himself who enables this standing in and through the finished work of his son. And once justified in this way, we now stand before God holy. And we stand in the grace that he has given to us in Christ. So Paul spells this out. This is Paul's theology. This is, Paul, this is what Paul is pulling from. This is what Paul lives out every single day, lived out every single day of his life. But he spells it out in Romans chapter 5, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through 2. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we don't stand before God uh, empty-handed, so to speak. But we don't stand before God with our merits and our good works and our best behavior and all of these other accolades that that we think might do us good before him. We stand there with Christ. Because it's in his grace that we can now stand before God's judgment seat. Now, I want you to be clear as I close of what Paul is not saying in verse 13. Paul is not saying that you will not face temptation. Uh, Paul is not saying that, that, um, that, that, that you will only face temptation that you can bear on your own strength. That is not what Paul is saying here. He is not saying, and I know this gets misconstrued a lot in our world, God will never give you more than you can handle. Have you heard that before? God will never give you. You might have given that advice. (laughs) God will never give you more than you can handle. Uh, Not true. Because you will have, and you probably already have, you will have plenty of temptations that will be overwhelming to the point of feeling like you are being crushed. Because you're simply trying to hold it up on your own. Because you've had the advice, well, God won't give me any more than I can handle, so I must be able to handle this in some way, shape, or form. But what Paul is saying here is that when those temptations to idolatry, to sexual immorality, To to be tempted to test God or to grumble against God or to drunkenness or to gossip or to anxiety. When those things arise, when those temptations come your way, Paul is saying that God has provided a way out of those temptations every single time. And that way out is not found in making yourself stronger or more resilient. That's stoicism. Rather, it is putting your trust in the faithfulness of God. And that faithfulness is Christ alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in the quietness and stillness of this moment, God, give us, give, us, uh, give us a moment just to reflect upon these words that Paul uh, has written uh, according to your Holy Spirit, because they are a hard message, and I know many in this room are probably wrestling with those things. Oh God, our Father, and you truly are our Father who uh, disciplines us uh, not because you're angry at us or disappointed in us, but you discipline us for our good. That you are making us more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. That you are allowing us more and more to share in the abundance of, of, of the gospel, the abundant life that is only to be found in Jesus Christ alone. And so I pray as we Wrestle with our sins that we would um, seek your forgiveness again and again and again knowing that you offer that to us in Christ And I pray that out of that forgiveness that we would that we would truly repent of our sins and that we would Live our lives unto your glory uh, With the help of christ who sent the helper the holy spirit you have truly given us everything we need in life and in godliness So god, I pray that we would live out of this this freedom that you have given to us in Christ, this rescue that you have, have done in our hearts and in our lives from our sin. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.